Hello again, Justin Spencer here. Sometimes all we want from a story is for it to make us remember the magic that exists in the world. And sometimes an author can describe something so well that if we close our eyes, we can imagine we are there, actually watching what they describe. L.M. Montgomery and Kaya's performance of Montgomery's words transported me to the time and feeling of a winter's night in this next episode. And in one of the hottest weeks of August so far, that was a very welcome journey. Welcome to Part 9 of Storylight's production of Anne of Green Gables. Chapter 18 Anne to the Rescue All things great are wound up with all things little. At first glance, it might not seem that the decision of a certain Canadian premier to include Prince Edward Island in a political tour could have much or anything to do with the fortunes of little Anne Shirley at Green Gables. But it had. It was a January the premier came to address his loyal supporters and such of his non-supporters as chose to be present at the monster mass meeting held in Charlottetown. Most of the Avonlea people were on Premier's side of politics. Hence, on the night of the meeting, nearly all the men and a goodly proportion of the women had gone to town 30 miles away. Mrs Rachel Lynde had gone too. Mrs Rachel Lynde was a red-hot politician and couldn't have believed that the political rally could be carried through without her, although she was on the opposite side of politics. So she went to town and took her husband. Thomas would be useful in looking after the horse, and Marilla Cuthbert with her. Marilla had a sneaking interest in politics herself, and as she thought it might be her only chance to see a real live premier, she promptly took it leaving Anne and Matthew to keep house until her return the following day. Hence, while Marilla and Mrs Rachel were enjoying themselves hugely at the mass meeting, Anne and Matthew had the cheerful kitchen at Green Gables all to themselves. A bright light was glowing in the old-fashioned Waterloo stove, and blue-white frost crystals were shining on the window panes. Matthew nodded over a farmer's advocate on the sofa, and Anne at the table studied her lessons with grim determination, despite sundry wistful glances at the clock shelf, where lay a new book that Jane Andrews had lent her that day. Jane had assured her that it was warranted to produce any number of thrills or words to that effect, and Anne's fingers tingled to reach out for it. But that would mean Gilbert Blythe's triumph on the morrow. Anne turned her back on the clock shelf, and tried to imagine it wasn't there. Matthew, did you ever study geometry when you went to school? Well, no. No, I didn't, said Matthew, coming out of his doze with a start. I wish you had, sighed Anne, because then you'd be able to sympathise with me. You can't sympathise properly if you've never studied it. It is casting a cloud over my whole life. I'm such a dunce at it, Matthew. Well, now, I dunno, said Matthew soothingly. I guess you're all right at anything. Mr Phillips told me last week in Blair's store at Carmody that you was the smartest scholar in school and was making rapid progress. Rapid progress was his very words. There's them as runs down Teddy Phillips' lips and says he ain't much of a teacher. I guess he's all right. Matthew would have thought anyone who praised Anne was all right. I'm sure I'd get on better with geometry if only he wouldn't change the letters, complained Anne. I learn the proposition off by heart, and then he draws it on the blackboard and puts different letters from what are in the book, and I get all mixed up. I don't think a teacher should take such a mean advantage, do you? We're studying agriculture now, and I found out at last what makes the roads red. It's a great comfort, 
I wonder how Marilla and Mrs. Lynde are enjoying themselves. Mrs. Lynde said Canada is going to the dogs the way things are being run at Ottawa and that it's an awful warning to the electors. She says if women were allowed to vote, we would soon see a blessed change. What way do you vote, Matthew? Conservative, said Matthew promptly. To vote conservative was part of Matthew's religion. Then I'm conservative too, said Anne decidedly. I'm glad, because get... Because some of the boys in school are grits. I guess Mr Phillips is a grit too, because Prissy Andrews' father is one, and Ruby Gillis says that when a man is courting, he always has to agree with the girl's mother in religion and her father in politics. Is that true, Matthew? Well, no, I don't know, said Matthew. Did you ever go courting, Matthew? Well, no, no, I don't know as I ever did, said Matthew, who had certainly never thought of such a thing in his whole existence. Anne reflected with her chin in her hands. It must be rather interesting, don't you think, Matthew? Ruby Gillis says when she grows up, she's going to have ever so many bows on the string and have them all crazy about her. But I think that would be too exciting. I'd rather have just one in his right mind. But Ruby Gillis knows a great deal about such matters, because she has so many big sisters. And Mrs Lynde says the Gillis girls have gone off like hotcakes. Mr Phillips goes up to see Prissy Andrews nearly every evening. He says it's to help with her lessons. But Miranda Sloan is studying for Queen's too. And I should think she needed help a lot more than Prissy, because she's ever so much stupider. But he never goes to help her in the evenings at all. There are so many great things in this world that I can't understand very well, Matthew. Well, now, I don't know as I comprehend them all myself, acknowledged Matthew. Well, I suppose I must finish up my lessons. I won't allow myself to open that new book Jane lent me until I'm through. But it's a terrible temptation, Matthew. Even when I turn my back on it, I can see it there just as plain. Jean said she cried herself sick over it. I love a book that makes me cry. But I think I'll carry that book into the sitting room and lock it in the jam closet and give you the key. And you must not give it to me, Matthew, until my lessons are done. Not even if I implore you on my bended knees. It's all very well to say resist temptation, but it's ever so much easier to resist it if you can't get the key. And then shall I run down the cellar and get some russets, Matthew? Wouldn't you like some russets? Well, no, I don't know but what I would, said Matthew, who never ate russets, but knew Anne's weakness for them. Just as Anne emerged triumphantly from the cellar with her plate full of russets, came the sound of flying footsteps on the icy boardwalk outside and the next moment the kitchen door was flung open and in rushed Diana Barry, white-faced and breathless, with the shawl wrapped hastily around her head. Anne promptly let go of her candle and plate in her surprise and plate, candle and apples crashed together down the cellar ladder and were found at the bottom embedded in melted grease the next day by Marilla who gathered them up and thanked Mercy the house hadn't been set on fire. Whatever is the matter, Diana? cried Anne. Has your mother relented at last? Oh, Anne, do come quick, implored Diana nervously. Minnie May is awful sick. She's got croup. Young Mary Jo says, and father and mother are away to town and there's nobody to go for the doctor. Minnie May is awful bad, and young Mary Jo doesn't know what to do. And oh, Anne, I'm so scared. Matthew, without a word, reached out for cap and coat, slipped past Diana and away into the darkness of the yard. He's gone to harness the sorrel mare to go to Carmody for the doctor, said Anne, who was hurrying on hood and jacket. I know it as well as if he'd said so. Matthew and I are such kindred spirits, I can read his thoughts without words at all. I don't believe he'll find the doctor at Carmody, 
sobbed Diana. I know that Dr Blair went to town, and I guess Dr Spencer would go too. Young Mary Jo never saw anybody with croup, and Mrs Lynde is away. Oh, Anne! Don't cry, Di, Anne said cheerily. I know exactly what to do for croup. You forget that Mrs Hammond had twins three times. When you look after three pairs of twins, you naturally get a lot of experience. They all had croup regularly. Just wait till I get the epicap bottle. You mayn't have any at your house. Come on now. The two little girls hastened out hand in hand and hurried through Lover's Lane and across the crusted field beyond, for the snow was too deep to go by the shorter woodway. Anne, although sincerely sorry for Minnie May, was far from being insensible to the romance of the situation and to the sweetness of once more sharing that romance with a kindred spirit. The night was clear and frosty, all ebony of shadow and silver of snowy slope. Big stars were shining over the silent fields. Here and there, the dark pointed firs stood up with snow powdering their branches and the wind whistling through them. Anne thought it was truly delightful to go skimming through all this mystery and loveliness with your bosom friend, who had been so long estranged. Minnie May, aged three, was really very sick. She lay on the kitchen sofa feverish and restless, while her hoarse breathing could be heard all over the house. Young Mary Jo, a buxom, broad-faced French girl from the creek, whom Miss Barry had engaged to stay with the children during her absence, was helpless and bewildered. Quite incapable of thinking what to do, or doing it if she thought of it, Anne went to work with skill and promptness. Minnie May has croup all right. She's pretty bad, but I've seen them worse. First, we must have lots of hot water. I declare, Diana, there isn't more than a cup full in the kettle. There, I've filled it up, and Mary Jo, you may put some wood in the stove. I don't want to hurt your feelings, but it seems to me you might have thought of this before if you'd had any imagination. Now, I'll undress Minnie May and put her to bed, and you try to find some soft flannel cloths, Diana. I'm going to give her a dose of Epicac first of all. Minnie May did not take kindly to the Epicac, but Anne had not brought up three pairs of twins for nothing. Down the Epicac went, not only once, but many times during the long, anxious night, when the two little girls worked patiently over the suffering Minnie May and young Mary Jo, honestly anxious to do all she could, kept up a roaring fire and heated more water than would have been needed for a hospital of croupy babies. It was three o'clock when Matthew came with the doctor, for he had been obliged to go all the way to Spencervale for one. But the pressing need for assistance was past. Minnie May was much better and was sleeping soundly. I was awfully near giving up in despair, explained Anne. She got worse and worse until she was sicker than ever the Hammond twins were, even the last pair. I actually thought she was going to choke to death. I gave her every drop of Epicac in that bottle, and when the last dose went down, I said to myself, not to Diana or young Mary Jo, because I didn't want to worry them any more than they were worried. But I had to say it to myself just to relieve my feelings. This is the last lingering hope, and I fear tis a vain one. But in about three minutes, she coughed up the phlegm and began to get better right away. You must just imagine my relief, Doctor, because I can't express it in words. You know, there are some things that cannot be expressed in words. Yes, I know, nodded the Doctor. He looked at Anne as if he were thinking some things about her that couldn't be expressed in words. Later on, however, he expressed them to Mr and Mrs Barry. That little red-headed girl they have over at Cuthbert's is as smart as they make em. I tell you she saved that baby's life, for it would have been too late by the time I got there. 
She seems to have a skill and presence of mind perfectly wonderful in a child of her age. I never saw anything like the eyes of her when she was explaining the case to me. Anne had gone home in the wonderful, white-frosted winter morning, heavy-eyed from loss of sleep, but still talking unweariedly to Matthew as they crossed the long white field and walked under the glittering fairy arch of the Lover's Lane maples. Oh, Matthew, isn't it a wonderful morning? The world looks like something God has just imagined for his own pleasure, doesn't it? Those trees look as if I could blow them away with a breath. Poof! I'm so glad I live in a world where there are white frosts, aren't you? And I'm so glad Mrs Hammond had three pairs of twins after all. If she hadn't, I mightn't have known what to do for many me. I'm real sorry I was ever cross with Mrs Hammond for having twins. Oh, Matthew, I'm so sleepy. I can't go to school. I just know I couldn't keep my eyes open, and I'd be so stupid. But I hate to stay home, for guilt. Some of the others will get head of the class, and it's so hard to get up again. Although, of course, the harder it is, the more satisfaction you have when you do get up, haven't you? Well, no. I guess you'll manage all right, said Matthew, looking at Anne's white little face and the dark shadows under her eyes. You just go to bed and have a good sleep. I'll do all the chores. Anne accordingly went to bed and slept so long and soundly that it was well on in the white and rosy winter afternoon when she awoke and descended to the kitchen where Marilla, who had arrived home in the meantime, was knitting. Oh, did you see the premiere? exclaimed Anne at once. What did he look like, Marilla? Well, he never got to be premier on account of his looks, said Marilla. Such a nose as that man had. But he can speak. I was proud of being a conservative. Rachel Lynde, of course, being a liberal, had no use for him. Your dinner is in the oven, Anne, and you can get yourself some blue plum preserve out of the pantry. I guess you're hungry. Matthew has been telling me about last night. I must say it was fortunate you knew what to do. I wouldn't have any idea myself, but I never saw a case of croup. There now, never mind talking till you've had your dinner. I can tell by the look of you that you're just full up with speeches, but they'll keep. Marilla had something to tell Anne, but she did not tell it just then, for she knew if she did... Anne's consequent excitement would lift her clear out of the region of such material matters as appetite or dinner. Not until Anne had finished her saucer of blue plums did Marilla say, Mrs Barry was here this afternoon, Anne. She wanted to see you, but I wouldn't wake you. She says you saved Minnie May's life, and she is very sorry she acted as she did in that affair of the currant wine. She says she knows now you didn't mean to set Diana drunk and she hopes you'll forgive her and be good friends with Diana again. You're to go over this evening, if you like, for Diana can't stir outside the door on account of a bad cold she caught last night. Now, Anne Shirley, for pity's sake, don't fly up into the air. The warning seemed not unnecessary. So uplifted and aerial was Anne's expression and attitude as she sprang to her feet her face irritated with the flame of her spirit. Oh, Marilla, can I go right now? Without washing my dishes? I'll wash them when I come back, but I cannot tie myself down to anything so unromantic as dishwashing at this thrilling moment. Yes, yes, run along, said Marilla indulgently. And Shirley, are you crazy? Come back this instant and put something on you. I might as well call to the wind. She's gone without a cap or wrap. Look at her tearing through the orchard with her hair streaming. It'll be a mercy if she doesn't catch her death of cold. Anne came dancing home in the purple winter twilight across the snowy places. Afar in the southwest was the great shimmering pear-like sparkle of an evening star in a sky that was pale golden and ethereal rose 
over gleaming white spaces and dark glens of spruce. The tinkles of sleigh bells among the snowy hills came like elven chimes through the frosty air. But their music was not sweeter than the song in Anne's heart and on her lips. You see before you a perfectly happy person, Marilla, she announced. I'm perfectly happy, yes, in spite of my red hair. Just at present, I have a soul above red hair. Mrs. Barry kissed me and cried and said she was so sorry and she would never repay me. I felt fearfully embarrassed, Marilla, but I just said as politely as I could, I have no hard feelings for you, Mrs. Barry. I assure you once, for all that I did not mean to intoxicate Diana, and henceforth I shall cover the past with the mantle of oblivion. That was a pretty dignified way of speaking, wasn't it, Marilla? I felt that I was heaping coals of fire on Mrs. Barry's head. And Diana and I had a lovely afternoon. Diana showed me a new fancy crochet stitch her aunt over at Carmody taught her. Not a soul in Avonlea knows it but us. And we pledged a solemn vow never to reveal it to anyone else. Diana gave me a beautiful card with a wreath of roses on it and a verse of poetry. If you love me as I love you, nothing but death can part us two. And that is true, Marilla. We're going to ask Mr. Phillips to let us sit together in school again. And Gertie Pye can go with Minnie Andrews. We had an elegant tea. Mrs. Barry had the very best china set out, Marilla, just as if I was real company. I can't tell you what a thrill it gave me. Nobody ever used their very best china on my account before. And we had fruitcake and pound cake and doughnuts and two kinds of preserves, Marilla. And Mrs. Barry asked me if I took tea and said, Pa, why don't you pass the biscuits to Anne? It must be lovely to be grown up, Marilla, when just being treated as if you were is so nice. I don't know about that, said Marilla with a brief sigh. Well, anyway, when I am grown up, said Anne decidedly, I'm always going to talk to little girls as if they were too. And I'll never laugh when they use big words. I know from sorrowful experience how that hurts one's feelings. After tea, Diana and I made taffy. The taffy wasn't very good, I suppose because neither Diana nor I had ever made any before. Diana left me to stir it while she buttered the plates, and I forgot and let it burn. And then when we set it out on the platform to cool, a cat walked over one plate, and that had to be thrown away. But the making of it was splendid fun. Then when I came home, Mrs. Barry asked me to come over as often as I could. And Diana stood at the window and threw kisses to me all the way down to Lover's Lane. I assure you, Marilla, that I feel like praying tonight. And I'm going to think out a special brand new prayer in honour of the occasion. Chapter 19 A Concert, A Catastrophe, and A Confession Marilla, can I go over to see Diana just for a minute? said Anne, running breathlessly down from the East Gable one February evening. I don't see what you want to be triapsing about after dark for, said Marilla shortly. You walked home from school together and then stood down there in the snow for half an hour more your tongue's going the whole blessed time, clickety-clack. So I don't think you're very badly off to see her again. But she wants to see me, pleaded Anne. She has something very important to tell me. How do you know she has? Because she just signalled to me from her window. We have arranged a way to signal with our candles and cardboard. We set the candle on the windowsill and make flashes by passing the cardboard back and forth. So many flashes mean a certain thing. It was my idea, Marilla. I'll warrant you it was, said Marilla empathetically. 
and the next thing you'll be setting fire to the curtains with your signalling nonsense. Oh, we're very careful, Marilla. And it's so interesting. Two flashes mean are you there, three mean yes, and four no, five mean come over as soon as possible because I have something important to reveal. Diana has just signalled five flashes, and I'm really suffering to know what it is. Well, you needn't suffer any longer, said Marilla sarcastically. You can go, but you're to be back here in just ten minutes, remember that. Anne did remember it, and was back in the stipulated time. Although probably no mortal will ever know just what it cost her to confine the discussion of Diana's important communication within the limits of ten minutes. But at least she had made good use of them. Oh, Marilla, what do you think? You know tomorrow is Diana's birthday. Well, her mother told her that she could ask me to go home with her from school and stay all night with her. And her cousins are coming over from Newbridge in a big pung sleigh to go over to the debating club concert at the hall tomorrow night. And they're going to take Diana and me to the concert. If you'll let me go, that is. You will, won't you, Marilla? Oh, I feel so excited. You can calm down then, because you're not going. You're better at home in your own bed. And as for that club concert, it's all nonsense. And little girls should not be allowed to go out to such places at all. I'm sure the debating club is the most respectable affair, pleaded Anne. I'm not saying it isn't. But you're not going to begin gadding about to concerts and staying out all hours of the night. Pretty doings for children. I'm surprised at Mrs. Barry's letting Diana go. But it's such a very special occasion, mourned Anne on the verge of tears. Diana has only one birthday in a year. It isn't as if birthdays were common things, Marilla. Prissy Andrews is going to recite Curfew Must Not Ring tonight. That is such a good moral piece, Marilla. I'm sure it would do me lots of good to hear it. And the choir are going to sing four lovely pathetic songs that are pretty near as good as hymns. And, oh, Marilla, the minister is going to take part. Yes, indeed, he is. He's going to give an address. That will be just about the same thing as a sermon. Please, mayn't I go, Marilla? You heard what I said, Anne, didn't you? Take off your boots now and go to bed. It's past eight. There's just one more thing, Marilla, said Anne, with the air of producing the last shot in her locker. Mrs. Barry told Diana that we might sleep in the spare room bed. Think of the honour of your little Anne being put up in the spare room bed. It's an honour you'll have to get along without. Go to bed, Anne, and don't let me hear another word out of you. When Anne, with tears rolling over her cheeks, had gone sorrowfully upstairs, Matthew, who had been apparently sound asleep on the lounge during the whole dialogue, opened his eyes and said decidedly, Well now, Marilla, I think you ought to let Anne go. I don't then, retorted Marilla. Who's bringing this child up, Matthew, you or me? Well now, you, admitted Matthew. Don't interfere, then. Well, now, I ain't interfering. It ain't interfering to have your own opinion. And my opinion is that you ought to let Anne go. You'd think I ought to let Anne go to the moon if she took the notion. I've no doubt, was Marilla's amiable rejoinder. I might have let her spend the night with Diana, if that was all. But I don't approve of this concert plan. She'd go up there and catch cold like as not, and have her head filled up with nonsense and excitement. It would unsettle her for a week. I understand that child's disposition, and what's good for it better than you, Matthew. I think you ought to let Anne go, repeated Matthew firmly. Argument was not his strong point, but holding fast to his opinion certainly was. Marilla gave a gasp of helplessness, and took refuge in silence. 
The next morning, when Anne was washing the breakfast dishes in the pantry, Matthew paused on his way out to the barn to say to Marilla again, I think you ought to let Anne go, Marilla. For a moment, Marilla looked things not lawful to be uttered. Then she yielded to the inevitable and said tartly, Very well, she can go, since nothing else will please you. Anne flew out of the pantry, dripping dishcloth in hand. Oh, Marilla, Marilla, say those blessed words again! I guess once is enough to say them. This is Matthew's doings, and I wash my hands of it. If you catch pneumonia sleeping in a strange bed or coming out of that hot hall in the middle of the night, don't blame me, blame Matthew. And surely you're dripping greasy water all over the floor. I never saw such a careless child. Oh, I know I'm a great trial to you, Marilla, said Anne repentantly. I make so many mistakes. But then, just think of all the mistakes I don't make. Although I might. I'll get some sand and scrub up the spots before I go to school. Oh, Marilla, my heart was just set on going to the concert. I never was to a concert in my life. And when the other girls talk about them in school, I feel so out of it. You didn't know just how I felt about it. But you see, Matthew did. Matthew understands me, and it's so nice to be understood, Marilla. Anne was too excited to do herself justice as to lessons that morning in school. Gilbert Blythe spelled her down in class and left her clear out of sight in mental arithmetic. Anne's consequent humiliation was less than it might have been, however, in view of the concert and the spare room bed. She and Diana talked so constantly about it all day that with a stricter teacher than Mr Phillips, Dire disgrace must inevitably have been their portion. Anne felt that she could not have borne it if she had not been going to the concert, for nothing else was discussed that day in school. The Avonlea Debating Club, which met fortnightly all winter, had had several smaller free entertainments, but this was to be a big affair. Admission ten cents in aid of the library. The Avonlea young people had been practising for weeks, and all the scholars were especially interested in it by reason of older brothers and sisters who were going to take part. Everybody in school over nine years of age expected to go, except Carrie Sloan, whose father shared Marilla's opinions about small girls going out to night concerts. Carrie Sloan cried into her grammar all the afternoon and felt that life was not worth living. For Anne, the real excitement began with the dismissal of school and increased therefrom in crescendo until it reached to a crash of point ecstasy in the concert itself. They had a perfectly elegant tea and then came the delicious occupation of dressing in Diana's little room upstairs. Diana did Anne's front hair in the new pompadour style and Anne tied Diana's bows with the especial knack she possessed. And they experimented with at least half a dozen different ways of arranging their back hair. At least they were ready. Cheeks scarlet and eyes glowing with excitement. True, Anne could not help a little pang when she contrasted her plain black tam and shapeless tight-sleeved homemade grey cloth coat with Diana's jaunty fur cap and smart little jacket but she remembered in time that she had an imagination and could use it. Then Diana's cousins, the Murrays from Newbridge, came. They all crowded into the big pung sleigh, among straw and furry robes. Anne revelled in the drive to the hall, slipping over the satin-smooth roads, with the snow crisping under the runners. There was a magnificent sunset, and the snowy hills and deep blue water of the St. Louis Gulf seemed to rim in the splendour like a huge bowl of pearl and sapphire rimmed with wine and fire. Tinkles of sleigh bells and distant laughter that seemed like the mirth of wood elves came from every quarter. Oh, Diana, breathed Dan, squeezing Diana's mittened hand under the fur robe. Isn't it all like a beautiful dream? 
Do I really look the same as usual? I feel so different that it seems to me it must show in my looks. You look awfully nice, said Diana, who, having just received a compliment from one of her cousins, felt that she ought to pass it on. You've got the loveliest colour. The programme that night was a series of thrills for at least one listener in the audience. And, as Anne assured Diana, every succeeding thrill was thrillier than the last. When Prissy Andrews, attired in a new pink silk waist with a string of pearls about her smooth white throat and real carnations in her hair, rumour whispered that the master had sent all the way to town for them for her. Climbed the slimy ladder, dark without one ray of light. Anne shivered in luxurious sympathy. When the choir sang far above the gentle daisies, Anne gazed at the ceiling as if it were frescoed with angels. When Sam Sloan proceeded to explain and illustrate how Sockery set a hen, Anne laughed until people sitting near her laughed too, more out of sympathy with her than with amusement at a selection that was rather threadbare, even in Avonlea. And when Mr Phillips gave Mark Antony's oration over the dead body of Caesar in the most heart-stirring tones, looking at Prissy Andrews at the end of every sentence, Anne felt that she could rise in mutiny on the spot if but one Roman citizen led the way. Only one number on the programme failed to interest her. When Gilbert Blythe recited Bingham on the Rhine, Anne picked up Rhoda Murray's library book and read it until he had finished. When she sat rigidly stiff and motionless while Diana clapped her hands until they tingled. It was eleven when they got home, sated with dissipation, but with the exceeding sweet pleasure of talking it all over still to come. Everybody seemed asleep and the house was dark and silent. Anne and Diana tiptoed into the parlour, a long narrow room out of which the spare room opened. It was pleasantly warm and dimly lighted by the embers of a fire in the grate. Let's undress here, said Diana. It's so nice and warm. Hasn't it been a delightful time, sighed Anne rapturously. It must be splendid to get up and recite there. Do you suppose we will ever be asked to do it, Diana? Yes, of course, someday. They're always wanting the big scholars to recite. Gilbert Blythe does often, and he's only two years older than us. Oh, Anne, how could you pretend not to listen to him when he came to the line, There's another, not a sister. He looked right down at you. Diana said Anne with dignity. You are my bosom friend, but I cannot allow even you to speak to me of that person. Are you ready for bed? Let's run a race and see who'll get to the bed first. The suggestion appealed to Diana. The two little white-clad figures flew down the long room, through the spare room door and bounded on the bed at the same moment. And then something moved beneath them. There was a gasp and a cry, and somebody said in a muffled accent, Merciful goodness! Anne and Diana were never able to tell just how they got off that bed and out of the room. They only knew that after one frantic rush, they found themselves tiptoeing shiveringly upstairs. Oh, who was it? What was it? whispered Anne, her teeth chattering with cold and fright. It was Aunt Josephine, said Diana, gasping with laughter. Oh, Anne, it was Aunt Josephine. How she came to be there. Oh, and I know she will be furious. It's dreadful. It's really dreadful. But did you ever know anything so funny, Anne? Who is your Aunt Josephine? She's father's aunt, and she lives in Charlottetown. She's awfully old. Seventy, anyhow, and I don't believe she was ever a little girl. We were expecting her for a visit, but not so soon. She's awfully prim and proper, and she'll scold dreadfully about this, I know. Well, we'll have to sleep with Minnie May, and you can't think how she kicks. 
Miss Josephine Barry did not appear at the early breakfast the next morning. Mrs Barry smiled kindly at the two little girls. Did you have a good time last night? I tried to stay awake until you came home, for I wanted to tell you that Aunt Josephine had come, and that you would have to go upstairs after all. But I was so tired and fell asleep. I hope you didn't disturb your aunt, Diana. Diana preserved a discreet silence, but she and Anne exchanged furtive smiles of guilty amusement across the table. Anne hurried home after breakfast, and so remained in blissful ignorance of the disturbance which presently resulted in the Barry household until the late afternoon, when she went down to Mrs Lynn's on an errand for Marilla. So you and Diana nearly frightened poor old Mrs Barry to death last night, said Mrs Lynde severely, but with a twinkle in her eye. Mrs Barry was here a few minutes ago on her way to Carmody. She's feeling real worried over it. Old Miss Barry was in a terrible temper when she got up this morning. And Josephine Barry's temper is no joke, I can tell you that. She wouldn't speak to Diana at all. It wasn't Diana's fault, said Anne contritely. It was mine. I suggested racing to see who would get into bed first. I knew it, said Mrs Lynde, with the exultation of a correct guesser. I knew that idea came out of your head. Well, it's made a nice lot of trouble, that's what. Old Mrs Barry came to stay for a month, but she declares she won't stay another day and is going right back to town tomorrow, Sunday, and all as it is. She'd have gone today if they could have taken her. She'd promised to pay for a quarter's music lessons for Diana, but now she is determined to do nothing at all for such a tomboy. Oh, I guess they had a lively time of it there this morning. The Barrys must feel cut up. Old Miss Barry is rich, and they'd like to keep on the good side of her. Of course, Mrs. Barry didn't just say that to me, but I'm a pretty good judge of human nature, that's what. I'm such an unlucky girl, mourned Anne. I'm always getting into scrapes myself and getting my best friends, people I'd shed my heart's blood for, into them too. Can you tell me why it is so, Mrs. Lynde? It's because you're too heedless and impulsive, child, that's what. You never stop to think. Whatever comes into your head to say or do, you say or do it without a moment's reflection. Oh, but that's the best of it, protested Anne. Something just flashes into your mind. So exciting. And you must out with it. If you stop to think it over, you spoil it all. Have you never felt that yourself, Mrs Lynde? No, Mrs Lynde had not. She shook her head sagely. You must learn to think a little, Anne. That's what. The proverb you need to go by is look before you leap, especially into spare room beds. Mrs Lynde laughed comfortably over her mild joke, but Anne remained pensive. She saw nothing to laugh at in the situation, which to her eyes appeared very serious. When she left Mrs Lynde's, she took her way across the crusted fields to Orchard Slope. Diana met her at the kitchen door. Your Aunt Josephine was very cross about it, wasn't she? whispered Anne. Yes, answered Diana, stifling a giggle, with an apprehensive glance over her shoulder at the closed sitting room door. She was fairly dancing with rage, Anne. Oh, how she scolded! She said I was the worst-behaved girl she ever saw and that my parents ought to be ashamed of the way they had brought me up. She says she won't stay, and I'm sure I don't care, but father and mother do. Why didn't you tell them it was my fault? demanded Anne. It's likely I'd do such a thing, isn't it? said Diana, with just scorn. I'm no telltale, Anne Shirley, and anyhow... I was just as much to blame as you. Well, I'm going to tell her myself, said Anne resolutely. Diana started. Anne, surely you never. Why, she'll eat you alive. 
Don't frighten me any more than I am frightened, implored Anne. I'd rather walk up to a cannon's mouth. But I've got to do it, Diana. It was my fault and I've got to confess. I've had practice in confessing, fortunately. Well, she's in the room, said Diana. You can go in if you want to. I wouldn't dare, and I don't believe you'll do a bit of good. With this encouragement, Anne bearded the lion in its den, that is to say, walked resolutely up to the sitting-room door and knocked faintly. A sharp, come in, followed. Miss Josephine Barry, thin, prim and rigid, was knitting fiercely by the fire. Her wrath quite unappeased and her eyes snapping through her gold-rimmed glasses. She wheeled around in her chair, expecting to see Diana, and beheld a white-faced girl whose great eyes were brimmed up with a mixture of desperate courage and shrinking terror. Who are you? demanded Miss Josephine Barry, without ceremony. I'm Anne of Green Gables, said the small visitor, tremulously, clasping her hands with her characteristic gesture, and have come to confess, if you please. Confess what? That it was all my fault about jumping into bed on you last night. I suggested it. Diana would never have thought of such a thing, I'm sure. Diana is a very ladylike girl, Miss Barry, so you must see how unjust it is to blame her. Oh, I must, he. I rather think Diana did her shade of jumping at least. Such carryings on in a respectable house. But we were only in fun, persisted Anne. I think you ought to forgive us, Miss Barry, now that we've apologised. And anyhow, please forgive Diana and let her have music lessons. Diana's heart is set on her music lessons, Miss Barry, and I know too well what it is to set your heart on a thing and not get it. If you must be cross with anyone, be cross with me. I've been so used in my early days to having people cross at me that I can endure it much better than Diana can. Much of the snap had gone out of the old lady's eyes by this time and was replaced by a twinkle of amused interest. But she still said severely, I don't think it is any excuse for you that you were only in fun. Little girls never indulged in that kind of fun when I was young. You don't know what it is to be awakened out of a sound sleep after a long and arduous journey by two great girls coming bounce down on you. I don't know, but I can imagine, said Anne eagerly. I'm sure it must have been very disturbing. But then, there is our side of it too. Have you any imagination, Miss Barry? If you have, just put yourself in our place. We didn't know there was anybody in that bed, and you nearly scared us to death. It was simply awful the way we felt. And then we couldn't sleep in the spare room after being promised. I suppose you are used to sleeping in spare rooms. But just imagine what you would feel like if you were a little orphan girl who had never had such an honour. All the snap had gone by this time. Miss Barry actually laughed. A sound which caused Diana, waiting in speechless anxiety in the kitchen outside, to give a great gasp of relief. I'm afraid my imagination is a little rusty. It's so long since I used it, she said. I dare say your claim to sympathy is just as strong as mine. It all depends on the way we look at it. Sit down here and tell me about yourself. I'm very sorry I can't, said Anne firmly. I would like to, because you seem like an interesting lady and you might even be a kindred spirit, although you don't look very much like it. But it's my duty to go home to Miss Marilla Cuthbert. Miss Marilla Cuthbert is a very kind lady, who has taken me to bring up properly. She is doing her best, but it is very discouraging work. You must not blame her, because I jumped on the bed. But before I go, I do wish you would tell me if you will forgive Diana. 
and stay just as long as you mean to in Avonlea. I think personally, I will, if you will come over and talk to me occasionally, said Miss Barry. That evening, Miss Barry gave Diana a silver bangle bracelet and told the senior members of the household that she had unpacked her valise. I've made up my mind to stay simply for the sake of getting better acquainted with that Anne girl, she said frankly. She amuses me. And at my time of life, an amusing person is a rarity. Marilla's only comment when she heard the story was, I told you. This was for Matthew's benefit. Miss Barry stayed her month out and over. She was a more agreeable guest than usual. For Anne kept her in good humour. They became firm friends. When Miss Barry went away, she said, Remember, you Anne girl, when you come to town, you're to visit me, and I'll put you in my very sparest spare room bed to sleep. Miss Barry was a kindred spirit after all, Anne confided to Marilla. You wouldn't think so to look at her, but she is. You don't find it right out at first, as in Matthew's case, but after a while, you come to see it. Kindred spirits are not so scarce as I used to think. It's splendid to find out there are so many of them in the world. Thank you again for listening to this episode of Storylight. We would be really grateful if you would subscribe to the podcast and give it a nice rating and review on whatever platform you listen. And if you have been enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend. We'd love to share these little bright lights of stories with everyone. You are my joy. You are my happy thoughts. I'll see you next time.